Boston Confidential, Bean Town's True Crime Podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail in Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the dark side of the Athens of America, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, welcome back to Boston Confidential. We're going to get right to it today. This is part two of the Teresa Corley murder in Bellingham. At first, I wasn't going to do a second episode on this because... I had covered most of what happened with Teresa Corley's sister, Jerry Hood. And if you haven't listened to that interview, I'd go back and listen to it, you know, before you get to this one. I think in the show notes, in the description of that episode, I stated that I believe that a handful of people in Bellingham know the truth and just won't come forward with it. This murder happened in 1978, but... As far as the handful of people in Bellingham who know what happened and won't come forward, I now believe it's more than that. I believe there is some type of police corruption or malfeasance, and I'm going to let you make your own decision after this episode, but time and time again, things have been brought to my attention that make it appear that this was an intentionally crappy investigation conducted from Jump Street, mostly by the Bellingham police. I don't know where the state police come in on this, but there is an aspect of that where the state police went into the Bellingham Police Department and seized all their evidence. But from what I can ascertain, that evidence had been not well-preserved or tampered with before the state police took it back. So that's where we are. All right, let's just get going with a quick recap of this case. It was December 4th, 1978. Teresa Corley was 19 years old, and she was working in a jute factory in Franklin, Massachusetts. It's the neighboring town to Bellingham. And Teresa Corley was going to a birthday party for a girlfriend, and a lot of people at the jute factory were going to go as well. And she had another circle of friends that were going to attend. So they go to a private residence after work, I'm assuming, and they kind of pregame it as we call it now. And then they end up at a local bar called the train stop. And Teresa had been drinking. There's no disputing that fact. And the drinking age at that time, 1978 was the age of 18. I know it seems crazy now, but that was the fact back then. So they leave the private residence and end up at the train stop where the party continues. It's reported that Teresa's boyfriend was talking to an ex-girlfriend, and this kind of pissed Teresa off. She stormed out. She asked for a ride from one of her friends beforehand, but the girl wanted to stay at the party. Teresa put on her light coat and stormed out angry and drunk, and she walked towards Franklin Center. And at a certain point, she was picked up by three men. It is believed she knew these men, at least from the area, and they may actually have been at the train stop. That is undetermined. 
at least in my investigation. So she's picked up and driven to an apartment complex called the Presidential Arms in Franklin, Massachusetts. It's the large complex. When she arrives there, it's reported that she gets nervous that she's the only girl. And at a certain point, Teresa Coley is raped. It's believed that she had been held down by two men and raped by one, at least one. Semen was later recovered from Teresa Corley's body, but that's a little bit ahead of the story. Teresa Corley somehow escapes. She puts on a wrong shoe. If you remember back in the 70s, there was these like wallaby type shoes. She ended up putting on one male shoe. I believe it was a left shoe, so she ended up with two left shoes on. She flees the apartment, and at some point, a Gorilla Farms driver, there's two drivers in this case, but one picks her up and drops her at the gate of Gorilla Farms, the milk processing plant in Franklin. It's a large plant, very busy. I don't think he can take her in. He leaves her at the gate. A second driver coming out sees her there. He knows he's not supposed to pick her up per company regulations, but he has a daughter in a soft spot. And he asks her, you know, what happened? She gets into the truck and he says he would bring her to the Bellingham police station. He tells her she had been raped. So he drives her to the Bellingham police station. I'm sure she was disheveled. And this driver said she had a real bee in her bonnet, very angry. She had slurred her words and I think she had a rough night here. So she may still have been intoxicated. He drops her off at the Bellingham police station, and I hate to say it, a short time later, she just disappears into the ether, and she's later found strangled on 495. It's unclear when the search for Teresa actually ramped up in terms of the police. This was a different age in policing. They wanted you to wait a certain time frame before you could ask for a search to be done, but... Teresa's mother and siblings knew something was wrong. Teresa would never do this. So the police lost precious time in looking for Teresa Corley, and it would only get worse. So this incident at the train stop goes into the wee hours, right? It's December 4th. It turns at midnight, obviously, into December 5th. On December 8th, Teresa Corley's body is found on 495 North at the Bellingham Medway line, but still in Bellingham. The body is found in one of the most curious ways I've ever seen in a criminal investigation. Somebody calls the Bellingham police non-emergency line, the business line, and says, my name is John Burlington. I'm a businessman in Connecticut, and I stopped to take a leak on 495, and I saw a body. And he's not there now. He didn't stop and call the police. He said he continued back to Connecticut. That's strange, right? So you stop to take a leak on the side of the highway, see this body and continue home. It's insane. So this call goes out. Cops are dispatched to the body on 495. And around this same time or just a short time later, an individual by the name of Ronnie Moore who is known to everybody in Bellingham, walks into the police station and says, is that Teresa Corley they found up on 495? The police had barely gotten there. They hadn't fully identified this body. How did Ronnie Moore know 
who that was. Okay. So I believe this is the beginning of this investigation going off the rails. The dispatcher who took the call initially from this person identifying himself as John Burlington stated that that sounded just like Ronnie Moore. And now Ronnie Moore is asking questions that he should have no information on. How do they know that a body was found? How does he know any of that, right? So what should have happened, and I think didn't happen, I'm confident didn't happen, why wasn't somebody, a detective, dispatched from that crime scene to come down to the Bellingham Police Department and talk to Ronnie Moore? Ronnie Moore, the Moore family in Bellingham is a prominent family. They owned a cafe that the police frequented, was right across the street. Ronnie Moore was friends with almost the entire police department, despite a checkered drug-related past. So Ronnie Moore is asking all these crazy questions and seemed to know who was laying naked up on 495. How does he know that? How did he know that's Teresa Corley? And I get it. I think a defense attorney would say, oh, well, he knew Teresa was missing because it is a small town and word had spread and they had started looking for her. But the police had barely gotten there. Nobody else knew there was Bonnie there. There's something wrong here with this guy. So how come the police weren't dispatched back down there to talk to Ronnie? Maybe he comes up with an explanation, but at a minimum, his car should have been searched, right? And I got a bit of blowback from the last episode saying this. The motor vehicle should have been searched. What people don't understand in applying for search warrants and searching vehicles, you're covered by the Fourth Amendment. But there's a motor vehicle exception rule to the search requirements, right? You need probable cause to search. And I think this is where people get confused. I stated there was probable cause to search. And that probable cause came about through the fact that this person identified himself as John Burling to the dispatcher. And when Moore came in, that dispatcher said that sounded just like that John Burlington, right? They could never find John Burlington, no listing of him. In fact, I believe it was Ronnie Moore, and I believe the police should have believed that. I don't know why this wasn't immediately capitalized on. So I believe the probable cause consisted of this phone call, a strange phone call saying, I saw a dead body, but then continued to drive for 70 miles before I reported it. And then combined with the dispatcher saying, that sounded just like Ronnie Moore. Okay, so now I believe he, they didn't even really need a warrant at that point because I'm going to quote a court case. I don't like to do that because it just takes up so much time. But in this case, I think I will. There's actually several court cases I could cite on this, but the one that stands out to me is United States versus Ludwig. And in this, it was found that a search warrant is not required, even if there is little or no risk of the vehicle being driven off. The court stated, if police have probable cause to search a car, they need not get a search warrant first, even if they have time and opportunity. In Pennsylvania versus LeBron, the U.S. Supreme Court stated, if a car is readily mobile and probable cause exists to believe it contains contraband, the Fourth Amendment permits the police to search the vehicle without more. They could have searched the vehicle. They should have searched the vehicle immediately. I've read some documents that Ronnie Moore's vehicle was ultimately searched. And 
by the time the police got to it, the interior had been ripped out. So that opportunity was gone. And I believe this has to be kind of intentional here. It's just one crappy thing after another. The phony phone call, the dispatcher saying that sounded just like Ronnie Moore was probable cause to search that vehicle. They didn't need much more. They should have did it, and they didn't, and they blew it. And I do believe those court cases I cited were in effect at that time. But if you want to go back even further, the original motor vehicle exception doctrine was codified in Carroll versus the United States in 1925. So the reason I believe Ronnie Moore was comfortable going into the police station and asking about whose body was found when nobody else knew is because he was in and out of the police department all the time. And that's because the Moore family was related to a family within the Bellingham Police Department by the name of Arkan. There was a, I think he was a detective at the time, but at a minimum, he was a patrolman, right? So the Moors and the Arkans are intertwined, they're related, and I can't believe that nobody saw this conflict of interest as soon as Ronnie Moore walked in. This is a conflict of interest. The case should have been fully given over to the state police. There's a conflict of interest here. Naturally, the Bellingham police didn't inform the state police of such conflict. And there's no denying that the Bellingham police knew that Ronnie Moore was a bad actor. He had been arrested in Florida for narcotics in 75. He was arrested in California for narcotics in 78, January of 78. He was a known drug dealer in the area, a big one. And he had carte blanche to come and go from the Bellingham Police Department. And so did other members of the Moore family. And the police were all kind of intertwined here. And they intersected at the Moore's Diner where they got free coffee. And it was just that type of small town setup here. So there's another issue that leads me to believe that this investigation was completely compromised from the start. There were reports that at this apartment where Teresa Coley was raped, the presidential arms, after she had disappeared, I don't know if the body had been discovered. I believe the body had been discovered, but I'm not entirely sure on that. There's a call at that very same apartment for a disturbance. And they get there, and it's a bunch of people, guys and girls. But there's a shoe kind of out in the middle, I'm thinking, of the living room or something. But a Franklin patrolman asks, whose shoe is that? Why is that shoe there? You know, it's strange. And they reply, it's Terry Corley's shoe. At a minimum, Terry Corley was missing. Her body may have already been found. And I don't know what happened with this. The Franklin cop would have known or should have known that this is now a crime scene. This girl at a minimum is missing and nothing is done with this apartment. There's no forensic examination. I heard later, you know, years later that the state police came back and took paint chips from the bathroom. But I just don't think these guys who had been drinking all night would have cleaned up, right? DNA was later discovered on Terry Corley's jeans. There would have been DNA all over those sheets. There may have been blood. Her shoe was evidence. Why wasn't it taken? Why wasn't it booked into evidence? What the hell happened here? 
There is no indication, there is no record that a forensic team was called out to the apartment at the Franklin Arms. So it is reported that after a certain amount of time, the state police got furious and went in. I don't know when this occurred, but multiple sources have told me this. The state police went into Bellingham PD and they took all the evidence from them because something was wrong with this case and they had to retrieve that evidence. So it's just really hard for me to get over this conflict of interest where the Moors, the Arcans related. I think I now believe that that Arcan was a lieutenant at the time, but that should have been fully given over to the state police because you had a conflict of interest. Ronnie Moore was comfortable walking into the police station to ask about a dead body that nobody else knew about because he knew he was going to walk out and he shouldn't have walked out. Something else I'd like to add at this time, Ronnie Moore was later arrested or at least hauled into the police station and he said in front of people that he didn't do it, but he knew who did, but he didn't want to be a rat. I don't know if I believe that. And one of the reasons I don't believe that Ronnie Moore didn't physically do this is because he became a suspect some years later in 1985 in a murder that's still unsolved today in Milford, Massachusetts. And the victim's name was Maria Germano Evangelista. And it is reported that Ronnie Moore and another suspect that he hung around with, who was also into drugs, murdered Maria Germano Evangelista. That case also remains unsolved today, and that's from 1985. Another of the things I've changed my mind on in this case is they maintain that Teresa Coley didn't go into the police station after being dropped off by the Gorelick Farms truck driver. I don't know if that's true. I've heard several stories relating to the Bellingham Police Department's treatment of rape victims more recently than 1978, but I can imagine a girl coming into the police station in the early morning hours, disheveled, smelling of alcohol, and a little bit incoherent, and they send her home to sober up. So I believe she may have went in there. She was so on fire with this truck driver, I believe she likely would have went in. Rape cases were treated much, much differently in 1978. It was almost as if the victim was at fault. I think most people understand the change in dynamic from 78 to now. But back then, they treated it pretty poorly. So there's a time frame in there where the truck driver dropped her off at the Bellingham police station and she's last seen a short time later and then boom, into the ether. I'm going to speculate here. I usually don't like to do that, but this case is 40 years old and it needs some attention. So I'm going to tell you what I think happened here. I think those three jamokes at the apartment in Franklin eventually woke up from their drunken and drug-induced stupor, realized that they raped Teresa Corley and they were likely going to prison. And they went looking for her. And ultimately, they found her. And somehow, in between that time, Ronnie Moore became involved. To what end, I don't know. But he definitely knew who did this, and he may have been involved himself. I've heard the murder occurred in the woods off Maple Street, that was a crime scene, never investigated. 
and it's unascertained as if that's true, but she was found a short time later on 495. And another part that I, I think I, I missed telling you earlier, where Teresa Corley's body was placed on 495 was in a place that wouldn't have been seen if you pulled over to take a leak. It was down in the gully. You would have had to walk down very far to see this body. So again, that goes to the probable cause to search that vehicle for any more. So DNA in this case, you know, it comes to fruition. I'm thinking it would be late 80s into the 90s, and the DNA on Teresa Corley's genes came back to an individual by the name of David Cohn. And I think by this time, they had known pretty much what happened at the apartment in Franklin. One of the guys right after the rape, or shortly after the rape, fled the state. I believe this was another missed opportunity. The statute of limitations expired. They couldn't prove the rape, and now there's no leverage for the murder. All you have to do is say, talk to my attorney. If they had brought out the handcuffs and told those three guys at the Franklin apartment, you're going to Walpole, and Walpole was a different prison back then, say, you're going to Walpole. Tell me what happened. When the statute of limitations, seven years passed, there's no pressure on that. All you got to say is, go talk to my attorney. It's an absolute missed opportunity to solve this murder. So when I use the phrase corruption in this, I don't mean it in the general sense where you pay the police to, I don't know, here's 20 grand, protect my drug shipment. I believe this was a slow rolling corruption. I don't believe money changed hands, but it came down to the fact that the police knew and were related to this Moore family. They knew them, liked them. They patronized their cafe. They had coffee for free. It's a small town. They're all intertwined, and somebody wanted to protect Ronnie Moore, right? He may not have committed this murder. He knew who did. He told you he did. But I believe members of the police force, and yes, I'm using the plural, members of the police force were actively protecting Ronnie Moore and the Moore family. I don't know if his house was ever searched. By the time they got around to searching Ronnie Moore's van, he had stripped it. What does that tell you? I believe another factor that contributed to this case was the fact that Teresa Corley and the Corley family were newcomers to Bellingham. And the people that committed this horrific rape and murder were townies. So it's townies, locals versus newcomers. What do we owe this new family when we know the Moore family, when we know these families, they're our friends, they're our family, right? It couldn't be. Well, I think it was. And you ruined it. You ruined this case from Jump Street. And I think it was intentional. My heart goes out to Jerry Hood. She had recently picked up the case again, and she started a Facebook page and wanted some answers. She demanded some answers, okay? And she deserves them. But I believe she was treated poorly. At one point, I believe it was a state police detective or a Bellingham detective who asked her, where did you get your junior detective's badge? I would have replied, where did you get your real badge? But Jerry's too classy for that. She was also told recently, I believe, by an ADA that they were looking to charge Jerry with a crime because Jerry went out and interviewed 
one of these suspects and they got wind of it. And Jerry's in the ADA's office and the ADA says to her, we're looking to charge you with a crime for interfering with this investigation. That blows me away. Jerry's doing more work on this case than they've ever have. She's done more in a year. She's gotten more information, more of a timeline in this case than they have in 40 goddamn years. Jerry was also speaking to an ADA at one point, and Jerry had asked a question about the rape. And the ADA replies that, oh, I'm not looking into the rape. I'm only looking into the murder. What? The rape precipitated this homicide. It's all one. Are you insane? So I just don't know what's going on. And Jerry and the rest of the Corley family want this case now to be assigned to the state police unresolved unit. It's basically their cold case unit. They're trained detectives in solving older cold cases. The Norfolk County District Attorney's Office will not release this case to the unresolved unit for reasons unknown. I believe some of the reasons are that this was such a botched investigation and may contain that slow rolling corruption that I had mentioned earlier. I don't know how this case gets solved because the DNA they have comes from the rape. The statute of limitations has expired on that naturally. And all these guys have to do is say, lawyer, and that's it. So I'm hoping somebody has a conscience in this case. They haven't in 40 years. That's almost a lifetime. So Ronnie Moore died with a needle in his arm in Florida in the mid-2010s, I think, and he's gone. Everybody's dying. Man, these people just get no justice, and nobody really seems to be that amped up about it. Jerry asked these questions around town on her Facebook page everywhere, and they kind of treat her like a pariah. I mean, it's just sad all around. But I've spoken with Jerry. I've become friendly with her, and she's not going to quit. So, guys, now you know why I said this is one of the worst investigations I've ever come across. And I believe at least part of it was intentional. I don't believe the state police had a role in that nasty, slow-rolling corruption, but I believe Bellingham police did. Guys, there's much more to this story. Some of it I couldn't report, but it's all in the same ball of wax, if you will. Same things, same names. So... There's more to it. This case sorely needs a book written about it, and somebody needs to write it. And I'm hopeful that one day the Corley family will get justice. But in the meantime, if you know anything about this case, and it's not too late, call the Massachusetts State Police tip line at 781-830-4990. And there's also a Facebook page, Justice for Teresa Corley, Bellingham, Mass, 1978. Just punch that into the search function on Facebook and it'll come right up. I'll also link both of those in my show notes. And that's it for right now, guys. I'd love to come back when there's an arrest in this case. So I'm going to leave it there and we'll get on to the next one. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.